Welcome to another episode of Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing this weekend, Ben? Pretty good. Cool. Even with it kind of being overcast, some spring snows coming in. Yeah, we've been having... Weather. Weather. Yeah, some unpredictable random snowfalls during the, uh... The Calgary Expo, for instance, it was beautiful up until the Saturday, and then it snowed in a blizzard suddenly, and then it was all melted by the end of day Sunday. And it's been kind of doing that on and off ever since. Mm -hmm. Just snows, it's gone in about a day, and then four days later or so it snows again. I mean, I suppose it's good for the farmers. Is it, though? Yeah, they need moisture to grow their crops. I suppose. I suppose it's not as bad as, like, getting snow in, like, August or something, or July. Yeah. The snow helps the ground soak in the water more rather than just straight water where it would just oversaturate far more quickly. I see. I didn't know you knew so much about agriculture. I actually come from a farming family. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. My dad's side. I mean, like, my mom farmed as well, and, like, so did my grandmother, but, like, I don't know jack about farming. You just pick up some things, Ben. Okay. Speaking of picking up things, what are we watching today? Awkward segue, but uh, today we are watching Return of the Vampire from 1943. Okay. Is this a sequel? No. If any lawyers ask, no. Okay. Well, give us the sitch. So you'll often hear Return of the Vampire referred to as an unofficial sequel to Dracula, which is... Difficult, because Dracula died. Well, this movie does get around that. Okay. But also, it's not entirely true. This movie's more of a cash-in or rip-off of Dracula, which certainly we've seen before. Mm -hmm. But what's unique about this rip-off of Dracula is that Bela Lugosi is in it as a vampire. Okay. So, the thing to understand is that during the sort of golden age of their movie Monsters, Universal Pictures gained a reputation for litigiousness. Uh, The studio owned the film rights to Dracula, and while Frankenstein was public domain, Universal maintained that they had a copyright over the appearance of the monster as shown in their films. That makes sense. It's a pretty iconic type of design. Right, exactly. Um, They maintained a copyright over all of their makeup designs. You couldn't have a werewolf that looked too much like the Wolfman. You couldn't have a Frankenstein monster that looked too much like Jack Pierce's version of the Frankenstein monster, etc. And and they owned the film rights to Dracula uh, outright. We've seen kind of some movies that are rip-offs of Dracula. You know, your White Zombies, or your Mark of the Vampires, or your Dead Men Walk. But they all kind of get around it by, A, not really being Dracula, and B... You know, if they've got Bela Lugosi, he's not playing a vampire. Mm-hmm. Or if they've got a vampire, it's not Bela Lugosi. You know, like, it's different. Yeah, it's kind of why Bela Lugosi, as, like, the icon, seems to have hypnotic powers. Because mm-hmm. they're just... Because he's a vampire, but he's not playing one in this movie. Right. Like, what's interesting is that Bela Lugosi, you know, you hear about how he got typecast as Dracula. 
But here we are over 10 years after the original Dracula. He's never played the character again, and he's never even been a real vampire in a movie since. Mm -hmm. The closest thing was Mark of the Vampire, where his character didn't talk and was revealed to just be an actor at the end of the movie. Well, he he did talk. Once he was revealed to be an actor at the end of the movie. Yeah, He didn't have any lines when he was pretending to be a vampire. Yeah. So, with all that said... Return of the Vampire was kind of a ballsy move on the part of Columbia Studios head Harry Cohn, because this is a vampire movie that stars Bela Lugosi and was released the same month as Universal's Son of Dracula. (laughs) And Lugosi's character, who's named Armand Tesla, (laughs) looks and acts exactly like Dracula. Yeah. Now, part of why I think Columbia Studios was able to get away with this is that unlike Frankenstein, where Universal could say, hey, the flat top head, the bolts, all of that, that's ours, Universal's version of Dracula was kind of defined by Lugosi himself. Yeah, you can't copyright the face of an actor who you don't have on contract. Exactly. So the real key to making Return of the Vampire work was getting Lugosi on board. Uh, You know, Universal wasn't even using him for their Dracula movie, making him totally free to appear in Columbia's competing film. The the thing about, you know, what Universal had the rights to was just the character Dracula. Mm -hmm. You know, which is still not even the concept of vampire. But if you make Bela Lugosi play a vampire, that's basically Dracula. And this is a movie that is about a vampire played by Bela Lugosi who looks and acts exactly like Dracula coming back to life in the modern day after having previously been defeated in the 1890s or so. Huh. So it's not a sequel to Dracula, if any lawyers ask. Sure. Harry Cohn felt that getting Lugosi on board to this movie was the key to beating Universal at their own game. Lugosi jumped at the offer when Columbia approached him. Since his abortive turn as the monster in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, he had appeared in the East Side Kids film Ghosts on the Loose for Monogram, and Return of the Vampire afforded him top billing at a major studio for the first time since Night Monster, and this time the role actually matched the billing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just top billing for a part that was actually just the butler. Mm-hmm. So Lugosi was worried that he would lose this opportunity if he haggled too much over his pay. So he offered to appear in the movie for $3,500, which was the exact same amount he had been paid to play Dracula originally way back in 1931. Buddy. In truth, Harry Cohn was actually willing to pay Lugosi much more than that. But since Lugosi offered to play the part for 3500 Cohn was happy to keep costs down. No. Just pay people what they're fucking worth, guys. If they undersell themselves, don't take that as an opportunity to exploit them. Even if you were willing to pay $5,000, I don't know what the going rate is, but you like if you still wanted to save them costs, at least give them 45 rather than just 35 Oh my god. This is like a thing that even bothers me when it happens today. Keeping costs low is the name of the game, Sarah, as is exploiting people. I guess, like it's Golden Age Hollywood especially, but I hate it. 
Return of the Vampire would be Lugosi's last starring role in a major studio film. Mm. So he will have future roles in major studio films, but they will not be starring roles. And he will have future starring roles, but they will not be in major studio pictures. Mm -hmm. So the film shot for four weeks and had a budget of $75,000, which makes it about half the cost of, say, like a Val Luton movie. And it shot under the direction of Lou Landers. So Lou Landers is an experienced director. Uh, we first saw his work under the name of Louis Friedlander way back in 1935 when he helmed the Lugosi Karloff version of The Raven. Oh, that, you know, it's, it's a, that's an all right film. In 1942, under the name Lou Landers, he directed Karloff again alongside Peter Lorre in the Columbia comedy The Boogeyman Will Get You. The primary writer of the screenplay for Return of the Vampire is Griffin J., who wrote The Mummy's Hand, The Mummy's Tomb, and Captive Wild Woman. Okay. So sort of like how Val Luton stole Kurt Siedmak for I Walked with a Zombie. This is like stealing bargain bin Kurt Siedmak. Like, you're still stealing, like, a universal horror writer, but... It's the dude doing the crappy B-movies, not Curtsy and Mac. Yeah. The protagonist of the film is played by Scottish actress Frida Inniscourt, born in 1901, who had been acting on stage since 1922 and in film since 1935, perhaps most prominently in the 1940 version of Pride and Prejudice. Following her retirement from acting and the death of her husband in 1961, she was an activist for multiple sclerosis research. Uh, she had been diagnosed with the disease in 1932, and she would pass away from it in 1976. Hmm. Making her feature film debut here is Dutch-American actress Nina Folk. Born in the Netherlands in 1924, uh, Nina Folk studied acting under Lee Strasberg and was signed to Columbia Pictures at age 19. This is her first movie. After a few horror pictures, she spent the late 1940s in a string of stylish film noirs for Columbia before winning acclaim for her performances in the 1950s in classics like An American in Paris, Executive Suite, The Ten Commandments, and Spartacus. From the 1960s to her death in 2008, she taught the Directing the Actors class at USC Film School. So Return of the Vampire was released on November 11th, 1943, so just a few days after Son of Dracula, and had a box office gross of $500,000, so it was a success. The financial success would motivate Columbia to continue biting off the horror styles of their competitors with Cry of the Werewolf in 1944. How are we watching this film? So Return of the Vampire is available on DVD and Blu-ray from Sony Home Entertainment, and you can uh, rent it to stream on Google Play and YouTube. Well, folks, if you would like to watch along, you can find the YouTube playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Return of the Vampire from 1943, directed by Lou Landers. See you on the other side, everybody.
Welcome back, everybody, to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Return of the Vampire from 1943, directed by Lou Landers. Sarah, this movie was dope, actually. This wasn't supposed to be good, Ben. <laughs> this was supposed to be an easy half-hour episode. <laughs> this It's so good, guys. You need to go see this movie. Yeah, like, this is... Dope. Yes. If you liked Lugosi's Dracula and want a real follow-up, this is what you should watch. Yeah, it's, um, it's really good. I don't think it relies on the existence of the 31 Dracula in order for it to work. It relies on the existence of the 31 Dracula in order to exist, but not to work, yes. Yeah, yeah. Like, I... Return of the Vampire is like a sequel to a movie that doesn't exist. <laughs> it's not quite a sequel to Dracula. It's like, it's a sequel to this movie that, you know, in Mummy's Tomb style, gets like... 10 minutes of stock footage, like, prologue recap at the start of the movie, except that movie never happened, which yeah. is kind of neat. So so we start in Medias Res with a spooky, fog-filled cemetery. And it's 1918, and we're in England. And a werewolf <laughs> is stalking through the fog, because guess what? There's a werewolf in this movie. Bet you didn't see that coming. Definitely didn't see it coming. And did not see it coming that his makeup is better than the wolfman's. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so I don't know if it's better on, like, a technical level in terms of how realistic it looks. Better designed. But it's better designed in the fact that it says wolf to my brain in a way that the wolfman's makeup does not. Yeah. So he turns out to be the minion of the movie's vampire, Armand Tesla. He's our Renfield. Yeah, if Renfield was a werewolf. His name is Andreas. And uh, Tesla has already begun feeding <laughs> on his victims. Uh, and I'm, of course, I'm, I'm going to be laughing at the Tesla thing. Like, don't, like, I can't believe they used Tesla as the last name. It's hilarious. I mean, I think it's like, you know, it's 1943 and people, like, don't, you know, Nikola Tesla has not been, like, canonized by Crack.com yet and, like, put into the wider pop culture. And so it's like, you have to be nerdy enough to remember this dude who was alive 50 years ago doing weird experiments, right? Otherwise, it's just a cool name you could pull out from somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Tesla is Bela Lugosi, of course, and he's already begun feeding on his victims. And one of his victims has been taken to a sanitarium, you know, like in Dracula. Um, but in this movie, instead of... Um, Dr. Seward, we have Lady Jane Ainsley, or Dr. Ainsley, or Lady Jane, but not Lady Ainsley, which they do say a lot in this movie, because Americans don't know how titles work. And she is great. She is um, a scientist and a physician, and she's trying to figure out, you know, what's going on with these patients who are drained of blood but show no sign of anemia. And so she has invited her mentor, Professor Saunders, a.k.a not Van Helsing, uh, to her sanitarium to help her. Professor Saunders consults a book. Basically, it's our old friend, the Book of Vampire Exposition, last seen in movies like Vampire and Nosferatu. And we learn, uh, for the first time, 
that the Book of Vampire Exposition is written by a Romanian scientist named Dr. Armand Tesla, who looks exactly <laughs> like Bela Lugosi. Yeah. And he died back in 1744, and he, worsh- and he researched vampires and the undead and all of that kind of stuff, which makes sense if you're a Romanian scientist. Of course, Armand Tesla is not a Romanian name at all. Armand is French, and Tesla is Serbian, but... Okay, it sounds cool. So from reading this book, Saunders figures out everything about vampires. He's able to look on the victims, see the telltale bite marks. They're like, okay, cool, we have to take care of this. Meanwhile, Tesla has begun feeding on Professor Saunders' granddaughter, Nikki, who's like a little girl. And she's friends with Lady Jane's uh, son, John, who's a little boy. And they basically manage to, like, drive Tesla off before he's able to finish off Nikki. And then search around the grounds of the sanatorium for, like, the nearest uh, cemetery and see if they can find Tesla's tomb, and they do. And then Andreas shows up and attacks because he's going to defend his master. Uh, But Professor Saunders is able to drive an iron spike through Tesla's heart just in time. And when he destroys the vampire, it breaks the werewolf curse on Andreas. Because remember... Everything you know about werewolves was made up in Universal's The Wolfman, and conceivably they have copyright on that stuff if they have copyright on Frankenstein's flathead. So this werewolf's (laughs) going to work by different rules. Conceivably, during all of this, Lady Jane doesn't actually get a good look at Tesla's face, because that's really the only way the rest of the plot of this movie makes sense. Yeah. Flash forward 23 years to what must be early 1941, which is Weird, since this movie was made in 1943, but there is a reason for it. We're getting there. Sir Frederick Fleet, who is the commissioner of Scotland Yard, has discovered a manuscript among the effects of Professor Saunders, who recently died in a plane crash. And in this manuscript, Professor Saunders explains, Hey, this is all about the time me and Lady Jane killed a vampire. So Sir Frederick calls in Dr. Ainsley, uh, who is, you know, a little bit older, but... No less... Awesome. Yes. To say, like, hey, so if I'm reading this right, you and Professor Saunders killed a guy. (laughs) And she's like, well, he was a vampire. He'd been dead since 1744. So that's not actually murder. Because it turns out, you know, they find out that the guy who wrote the book, Armand Tesla, on vampires... His research drove him kind of mad, and he ended up becoming a vampire himself. And that was the vampire they destroyed those many years ago. And Sir Frederick's like, right, but vampires don't exist. We're going to go take a look at that uh, coffin, and if that dude has a spike through his heart, you might have some legal troubles. And Lady Jane's trying to explain, like, no, you don't understand. Like, this was a necessary thing that we had to do for, like, the good of humanity. And Sir Frederick's like, okay, well, what happened to the werewolf guy? And so it turns out that, you know, because Lady Jane is a psychologist, she cured Andreas of being evil and a werewolf, and now he's a technician who works in her lab. Well, so she doesn't cure him of being a werewolf. The werewolf is a side effect of being the thrall of Tesla. Yes. Right? But she cured him of the hypnotism and, like, deep-set loyalty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She de-brainwashed him. Yeah, there we go. So, to recap... That's Lady Jane, scientist, doctor, mother, vampire hunter, and werewolf curer. Now that it's 1941, 
Uh, John Ainsley, Lady Jane's son, is all grown up. He is the conductor at the Royal Albert Concert Hall. And he was in the army, but got uh, decommissioned because of an injury? He was a pilot and was discharged due to an injury flying over the channel, which given the time frame of this movie means he probably was an escort from the Dunkirk evacuation. Ooh. Um, he is in love with Nikki, who is also all grown up, and she's a wren. And, uh... She's a what? So it stands for Women's Royal Naval Service, which is W-R-N-S, and so they got called wrens, uh, as in the birds. Oh, okay. So she's in the service. Yes. Okay. And we see that because she is wearing a uniform. uniform. Because everyone's doing their part for World War II. Right. Because, basically, this is World War II Dracula. And it's great. Speaking of World War II, the Jerrys are bombing London. <laughs> and this is really the reason why we are set in early 1941 and not when the movie was made. Because by 1943, the Blitz was over and they weren't bombing uh, London anymore. This is important because when the Jerrys bomb London, they bomb the cemetery that Tesla's in. Because they drove the spike through his heart and then just buried the body in the same cemetery and walked away. Everyone knows that you stake them, and that just holds them in place, and then you decapitate them. Yes. Or set them on fire. Yes. There's a second Both of them. thing. Yes. It's a two... Yes, it's exactly. It's a two-parter. Two-step process. Staking a vampire does not kill them. It just locks, paralyzes them. Yeah, they're just stuck. Yeah. Anyways, so... We uh, see that that is indeed the case here. Right. The, the cemetery, when it gets bombed, gets all jumbled up, and uh, a cleanup crew gets sent to, like, clean things up, and they find uh, the body of Armand Tesla with the big spike in it, and they think that that's just, like, weird shrapnel from the explosions, and they take the spike out, and Tesla comes back to life. Yeah, he moans, and they're like, that's weird, let's bury this guy. <laughs> And then later that evening, we get the shot of Tesla's hand coming up from the ground after they've reburied him. And I think that's the first time we've seen that. Oh, it is. Yeah. It's definitely the first time we've seen a hand coming out of a uh, freshly dug grave. Yeah, and that's like such an iconic horror image. For zombies. Right. Not really for vampires. But I can see why it gets... Yeah, I mean, like, zombies aren't even a thing really yet in the way that we think of them today. So... It's just interesting how it gets transplanted. Right. So, in addition to being a wealthy noblewoman, psychiatrist, doctor, werewolf curer, mother, and vampire hunter, Lady Jane is also part of a network of uh, people getting like Jewish people and other refugees out of Nazi Germany to freedom because she is amazing. Right. So the latest person she's helping is Dr. Hugo Bruckner, who is a scientist who was in a Nazi concentration camp, but the resistance got him out and now we're trying to get him safely to England. And um, there's like a, a whole process that's like already set in place that she's been doing this for a while where she sends Andreas out to like meet these people at the docks and like, bring them to this club where they get, like, put up for a while until they get sent to, like, the next step of the process or whatever. And so she sends Andreas out to go get Dr. Bruckner. And as Andreas goes out, he gets intercepted by Tesla, 
who is like, hey, you work for me. And Andreas turns back into a werewolf and is right back into being the minion and goes and kills Dr. Bruckner. And then Tesla assumes his identity so that he can integrate himself into society, specifically so he can get back to attacking Nikki. No, he wants to ruin the Ainsley family. Yes. He's going to take away everything Jane holds dear. This is a revenge mission. Oh, for sure. But, like, it just struck me that he's going after, like, the last target he had, who he got, like, interrupted and didn't get, like, a chance to finish, basically, with last time. Like, that's very... Listen, we know from Vampire Lord that, like, if you sprinkle seeds or whatever, they have to pick up every single one. They're yeah. very hyper-focused exactly. on things. Right. So, as Dr. Bruckner, uh, Tesla gets introduced to Lady Jane, to Nikki, to everyone in this social circle, uh, Sir Frederick from Scotland Yard as well. Speaking of Sir Frederick... He and Lady Jane did go to the cemetery to go find the body with the spike in it, but it's gone. And they just kind of figure that's because, you know, the cemetery got bombed. They make the decision to kind of drop the whole matter, and Lady Jane makes the decision to take Professor Saunders' manuscript and lock it away so that Nikki can never see it because, hey, your grandfather was a vampire hunter, and that all happened. And the vampire attacked, attacked you. you is, like, a weird thing to drop on someone in the middle of World War II. Yeah, because I think she's, like, ten or under when she's attacked. Like, she's young. Yes. So, the manuscript gets stolen by someone who, with great strength and a lot of body hair... <laughs> I wonder who it could be. Oh, um, Andreas can turn back and forth. That's So he's able to, like, keep his job at the Ainsley house. Exactly, yeah. And people aren't just, like, Hey, were you always a werewolf? <laughs> yeah. It's not attached to, like, Moonlight or anything yeah, like yeah. that. Sir Frederick's, like, opening up an investigation into Dr. Bruckner and Andreas and the missing manuscript. And Lady Jane's like, yeah, it's a vampire. Tesla's back. Like, that's what's happening. And Sir Frederick's like, no, that's not a thing. Vampires aren't real. <laughs> and he sends some of his men out to, like, follow Andreas and figure out what he's up to. And uh, I just have to stop here and say that one of these random Scotland Yard dudes is played by William Austin, the first actor to ever play Alfred in live action in the 1943 Batman serial from Columbia Pictures, which is what the character of Alfred was invented for. And, like, what Alfred looks like with, like, the mustache and how he's, like, thin and tall and everything is what William Austin looks like. Like, that's why Alfred looks the way he does. And it was, yeah. like, kind of cool to see him pop up in another movie. So these guys go and follow Andreas. He turns into a werewolf, kicks their ass, runs off, and they report back to Sir Frederick, like, hey, we got our asses kicked by a werewolf. And Sir Frederick's like, for fuck's sake, not you guys too. There's no such thing. Tesla, meanwhile, is continuing his uh, plot to turn Nikki into his victim. And a lot of this is beats that we've seen from Dracula, with Nikki kind of in the place of Mina, and John in the place of John. Yeah, Jonathan Harker, yeah. And... I, I keep, like, thinking David Manners is Jonathan so, like, <laughs> it's Mina and David Manners. Right. Yeah. Tesla comes into Nikki's, you know, room. They make a big deal about, like, the hypnotic powers in this one. Like, they go back to doing the, like, close-up on Lugosi's eyes and stuff, but he also gets, like, voiceover where he can telepathically tell people to come to him. And I think part of the reason why they emphasize that he's telepathically or hypnotically controlling 
Nikki is that like 61 year old Bell Lugosi doesn't quite have the like natural charisma and charm that say he did when he made Dracula in 1931. So you kind of have to up the idea that he's magically controlling her because the idea that he would be naturally charming her is not quite there the way it was in the, you know, old movie. Yeah. Um, but under his hypnotic control, uh, he is, you know, feeding on her, turning her into a vampire. Uh, she gets set on John. And we get sort of the scene from Dracula where, like, Mina goes after Jonathan Harker and, like, goes to attack him. Um, but in this case, John actually does get attacked and becomes a victim of the vampire as well. And so everybody's dying. And... Everyone's getting vamped. Yes. We even get the scene where Dracula confronts Professor Van Helsing directly, and they have a battle of wills that ends with Van Helsing making Dracula go away with a cross. But in this case, it is Tesla coming and confronting Lady Jane, who's playing like an organ, which is... Dope! Very extra. And uh, they have figured out that Tesla is Hugo Bruckner by this point, because Sir Frederick has informed Lady Jane that, like, yeah, Hugo Bruckner does not match Bella Lugosi's description at all. Yeah, he's like... Balding, stocky, plump. Walks with a limp. Yeah. So she's figured out, you know, what's the deal here. And uh, they have the same sort of conversation about, like, you cannot defeat my will kind of thing. And then she takes, like, the sheet music down, and there's just, like, a big cross in the organ that, like, has light shining through it. And the light, like, hits Lugosi, (laughs) and he explodes. (laughs) It's great. And then the... Scotland Yard guard comes in as if, like, he didn't hear the explosion. He just is like, oh, hey, Lady Ainsley, I was just looking for you. Where's Tesla? Yeah, like, doesn't hear the It's great. I love it. So Tesla gets uh, Nikki to uh, leave her room under hypnotic control, and Sir Frederick and Lady Jane just see Nikki leave, And Lady Jane's like, all right, we're just going to follow her, and she's going to lead us to Tesla. And Sir Frederick's like, this is crazy. And Lady Jane's just like, just fucking listen to me, man. Mm -hmm. So they follow her to the cemetery. And that's where uh, Andreas intercepts Nikki and takes her to Tesla. Uh, But the Jerry's attack again. And when Andreas shows up, Sir Frederick draws his gun and shoots him. And Lady Jane's like, what are you, crazy? Like... He's he's not under his own control. Like, don't shoot him. And uh, the Jerry's attack and bomb the cemetery again, which is like, this is an unlucky cemetery. <laughs> um, and in the explosions... Are there lucky cemeteries, Ben? Theoretically, the ground is supposed to be consecrated, right? Like, it's all holy ground. I would think that they are some of the luckiest places, theoretically. <laughs> so this uh, explosion enables Tesla and Andreas... Uh, with Nikki to escape, and uh, Lady Jane and Sir Frederick sort of lose the trail. They go to a church that was bombed out in London, where uh, Tesla has stashed his boxes of earth in the basement. And I have to say, living in the basement of a church is like a like an edgy move for a vampire. You know, that's like that's like being allergic to peanut butter. And, you know, deciding that you're going to live above a peanut butter factory. Like, (laughs) okay, man, you want to play with fire. But uh, Andreas gets, you know, Nikki down into the basement. They place her on a slab, because there's always one of those around. 
And Tesla's like, all right, well, now that I have her and everything's complete, I do not need you anymore, Andreas. And, you know, the werewolf's like, hey, man, I'm dying. I I got shot. Yeah, like, you're a vampire. Like, I'm supposed to live forever because I serve you. Like, do something. Help me. And, you know, he says, like, I'm dying. And Tesla gets a great line, which is, what is that to me? Um, Yeah. Which is pretty dope. And so he kind of pushes Andreas aside, gets him to, like, hide in a corner. And that's when Andreas remembers Lady Jane telling him about, like, the power of good and so on because he's in a church, a bombed-out church, and he finds, like, a crucifix in the rubble. And, you know, he's looking at Jesus on the cross, on the crucifix, and we're hearing this voiceover from Lady Jane talk about how, like, the power of good is the most powerful thing in the world and so on. And all of this enables uh, Andreas to break the curse and turn back into a man. And then he, like, comes at Tesla with the crucifix, and, you know, Tesla freaks out because he's a vampire, and then the church that has been bombed already gets bombed again. (laughs) And, you know, the whole place goes up. Rubble, whole deal. The next morning, Andreas wakes up in the rubble, and kind of looks around, and, like, Nikki's alive, but she's in the rubble, and here's Tesla over here in the rubble, and it's daytime, so before Tesla can kind of wake up, Andreas drags him up out of the rubble and, like, throws him outside in the sun and then spikes him through the chest. Because, again, you you do that just to hold them in place. And so now he's held in place with the sun right above him and his face fucking melts like he's a Nazi at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Scotland Yard dudes report to Sir Frederick and Lady Jane saying they have found uh, Andreas and Nikki. They go to the church. They take Nikki away on a stretcher. They find Andreas. He has died from... I guess the bullet wound from yesterday, but, like, man, that took some time. They go over to, they're like, there's this other body. And Frederick's like, yeah, I don't know who the fuck this is. This body looks like it's been here for years. And, you know, it's this melted skeleton (laughs) corpse. And Lady Jane's like, my dude, that's Tesla. He's a vampire. Like, come on. And Sir Frederick's like, no, I do not believe this vampire stuff. And he turns to his Scotland Yard boys and he's like, do you guys? And they're like, yeah, we do. And then Sir Frederick turns to us, the audience, and is like, do you guys? And then the movie ends. Yeah. Yeah, this movie is great. I loved how I didn't know what was going to happen. It's it's funny that it, like, it follows the broad strokes of the Dracula story again. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of previous movies we've seen, you know, it has a lot of, like, greatest hits from Dracula thing going on. But it's enough of a remix mm-hmm. that things feel new. Yeah, I would kind of describe it as, like, they're not so much hitting the same beats as they have the same flavor. It's the bare bones of the plot of Dracula again, but there's enough new shit going on, mm-hmm. right? And I think it's interesting watching Return of the Vampire right after Son of Dracula, mm-hmm. because we're just naturally going to be comparing them a bit. But I was so believed that there is very little exposition about what vampires are in this movie. There's a little bit, you know, during the prologue part where they tell you things like he has to rest in his coffin and mm-hmm. the, the sun will destroy him and, and you know, pinpricks and the, nobody will believe and blah, blah, blah. During the part where they're kind of just, like, speed-running Dracula, basically. Yeah, like, the first, like, they stake Tesla the first time at, like... The ten-minute 14 mark. minutes, yeah. I think I saw. Um, but, like, in Son of Dracula, it was, like, practically all exposition at mm. times. Like, whole scenes dedicated to it. 
So I appreciated that. Tesla's from Romania. I appreciated that. Yeah. And also speaking of Son of Dracula, we talked about how partly why they needed to recast someone as the vampire um, is because Lugosi is older and doesn't have that natural charisma and sex appeal Mm -hmm. as he did in the 31. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you, like, do you think seeing him in a vampire role, do you think he still is able to convey, if not sex appeal, then a certain feeling of mysterious charisma? (sighs) I think Bela Lugosi looks like he's really giving it his all. I think he does really well in this movie. This is... I think the most I've genuinely enjoyed him in some time, rather than, like, ironically enjoying him. Um, I think this movie kind of proves that he's the best at this shtick. Mm -hmm. But I think that age has visibly taken its toll on him. Um, And whether that's the aging, I mean, he's 61. It's also the morphine addiction. You know, that's going to really change the way you look. Uh, an act. And I think it does impact the character a little bit. Um, because I think Lugosi's good at this, and he clearly knows what he's doing and how to do it. I mean, you know, we talked about how he never really played Dracula again, but he was still playing Dracula on stage regularly, thousands upon thousands of times. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think it's not as effective as in the 31 Dracula, and I do think he's lost a little. Like, I buy it because it's Lugosi, and I'm willing to I'm willing to give him a little rope, I guess you could say. But I do think he seems a little diminished, you know? He he still he gets enough of it that the movie still works. Like it doesn't harm the movie, right? But he doesn't quite have the same power that he used to have. Um and I think that does hurt the movie a little bit. But it's like he's so much better at doing this, though, that it kind of makes up for it. Mm-hmm. Like, if Cheney in Son of Dracula has a lot of natural sort of power and intimidation that Lugosi has lost, the difference is, is that when Lugosi opens his mouth, suddenly you can buy it, you know? Um, even if he looks like a frail old man the rest of the time. Whereas when Cheney opens his mouth, immediately the spell is broken, right? That's kind of the difference. Sure. But yeah, yeah the, the sexy is certainly turned down. This one. <laughs> and I, I totally agree with what you were saying during the plot summary that the film itself kind of makes up for it by really emphasizing the hypnotic power that Tesla has. Because, um, like, the reason why Nikki seems enamored with him isn't so much like, oh, it's a potential romantic rival for John, but it's more like, oh, she was attacked as a child, and just as Andreas wasn't able to fully rid himself of the hypnotism, uh, she too is suffering the effects. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's not the same like, ooh, mysterious sexy man from Europe. It's It's more of like this dark thing from your past or whatever, right? Yeah. I also... Um, thought it was interesting how, like, in this film, I think Tesla does have a feeling of danger. Definitely the same kind of vampiric arrogance that we associate with uh, this type of creature. But the sense of danger was enhanced by the ties to the 31 Dracula. Because we know the steps of Dracula's plan from the 31 Dracula, in this movie, when we see those steps coming, 
and then they're going further, we're like, whoa, we haven't seen this before, what is going to happen, he's succeeding, how will our heroes succeed? Yeah, I think I think what we see a lot of in this movie is when it does do the greatest hits from Dracula things, where it hits on those beats, I think in a lot of cases, it's going further. It's like mm-hmm. going that next step further, right? This That's kind of what I meant when I said, like, this feels like what you would want from a sequel to Dracula. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of what this movie does feels like what Universal should have done in 1936 instead of Dracula's daughter. Mm-hmm. Because the way that this movie is like, here's what you liked in Dracula, but we're going to do it more, we're going to do it bigger, we're going to do it with higher energy, you know, and we're going to push it a little bit farther, kind of feels like the way that Bride of Frankenstein built on Frankenstein, right? Where it was like, this is the same thing, but more and bigger. Um, And that's what this movie does a lot. It does things that were done in Dracula and then does them, like, one step better or one step further. Yeah. Lady Jane Ainsley is great. I think we, we said that in the plot summary a few times, but she's really a very strong, commanding presence for the movie to kind of revolve around. Um, the performance by Frida Innescourt is really good. And I think that's also what helps make it feel different from the 31 Dracula. Yeah, where everyone was basically helpless. Um, it's also because our main adversary to our vampire figure isn't like an all-knowing professor from the old country, all-knowing male professor from the old country, but like a female doctor who is very, like, sure in what she believes in and is willing to fight for her family and is not defined by the fact that she's a lady as well. And what was interesting here, too, is she has fought Tesla before. And in the prologue, she's kind of like this younger character who's being mentored by a Van Helsing type. And now that character's dead, and she is the older, wiser character. And, you know, and she they do a good job. Like, I'm not sure exactly what's closer to the actress's real appearance. Like, did they make her look younger for the 1918 parts, or did they make her look older for the 1943 parts? But regardless, the movie does a good job of selling you on the time period, like that that, that there has been time that has passed. Uh, Matt Willis, who plays Andreas, uh, they give him some gray in his hair, and then that gray is also there when he's a werewolf in the... 1941 parts of the movie. Yeah, I thought that was a really nice touch. Yeah, Willis gives a really good performance, too. Um, Mm -hmm. He was in The Mysterious Doctor as the sort of um, simpleton of the village in that movie, who everyone thought was the killer, but it wasn't him. Um, And he's really good here. But uh, I think the thing about Lady Jane that's interesting is that she's the protagonist here in a way that Van Helsing never quite was. Because Van Helsing's, like, the Obi-Wan Kenobi character. He's this old guy who comes in and is like, hey, here's what you gotta do. But in the original Dracula, you know, we're kind of focused on Mina and Jonathan Harker. And in Dracula's daughter, you have uh, Garth and whatever his secretary's name was. You mean his fiance Janet? Who is also his secretary. No, Garth, that's... No. The thing about it is, like, in those earlier movies, we were focused on the breeding pair. And here, the breeding pair are still, like, characters, but they are... The the focus has shifted. We are focused on Lady Jane. She's our protagonist, and she has to protect these other people. And that makes the movie stronger because 
you know, Lady Jane or Van Helsing, either one, is a much more interesting character than, like, Jonathan Blanderson and his fiancée, like, Samantha Neglige. You know what I mean? Like... (laughs) Another reason why this movie is stronger than The 31 Dracula, in my opinion, is in the book Dracula, uh, it's kind of further explained, like, why Dracula happens to be going after like, Mina Seward or Lucy Seward or whoever it is in the novel, whatever. In the novel, that's Mina Murray. Okay, well, whatever. Um, In the film adaptation, that kind of just gets, like, shunted to the side and for economy of storytelling, and it just so happens that she, Mina, is the daughter of the owner of the sanitarium where Renfield's being kept. Yeah, and also happens to be next door to the abbey that Dracula has bought. Like, everything's kind of condensed... Uh, especially because a lot of characters are combined. Like, Seward isn't Mina's dad in the novel. He's one of Lucy's suitors. Like, yeah, yeah, everything's been very much changed so that it all just relies on coincidence. Yeah, it's all, like, circumstantial. Mm -hmm. Whereas here, Tesla has a revenge plot. Right. Has a revenge plan. Yeah, there's a reason he's after these specific people. Yeah, and that amps the danger, in Mm -hmm. my opinion. Yeah, it's not just the first bunch of people he met when he went to the opera in London. Yeah. For once, the comic relief I actually enjoyed, like, even though it was kind of along the same lines that we've had before of, like, Scotland Yard detectives or, like, bumbling, oafish, core blimey types, I actually found it funny instead of annoying this time, which was nice. Mm Mm-hmm. Why? I don't... (laughs) No? Okay, I think at least in the case of the detectives being like, that was a werewolf. Yeah, we do believe in in the vampires. Um, It has a feeling of like, you know how like when Shaggy and Scooby get scared? Mm. Like, yeah, I am also scared of this werewolf that just kicked your ass. Yeah. Um, And in the case of the gravekeepers, or the the people cleaning up the graveyard, um, they're in so little... Yes. As a movie, I think that's also why that they work. Yes. Yeah, uh, certainly. I liked even the, like, weird fourth wall-breaking joke at the end. Like, we've seen that in, um... Uh, was it the bat? No. It was... I think it was the Bela Lugosi the ape? Yes. It was the Bela Lugosi ape man. Where, like, the dude is, like, walking through the whole movie, like, doing stuff. And at the end, he's like, I'm the guy who wrote this thing, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you're like, what the fuck? Oh, what I'm thinking about with the the bat or the bat whispers or whatever is like the person at the end saying like "Don't tell anyone." Oh, but, like, yeah, that curtains behind, so it's not exactly the same. It's not fourth wall breaking. It's it's sort of that's more like you know uh, Edward Van Sloan coming out from behind the curtain at the end of Frankenstein or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I and, I, and here it it worked because it's also just like, fuck, do I believe in vampires? <laughs> Well, it's one thing, too. It's yeah. one gag at the end of the movie instead of a running thing. And it's a nice way to kind of put a little bit of that lighter tone at the end of a horror movie, um, rather than having, oh, the breeding pair going off into the honeymoon, off yeah. into the sunset. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I would agree, for sure. Um, do we want to talk about the fact that uh, Hitler and Nazis are vampires? What? <laughs> So at one point during the movie, Andreas has already, you know, betrayed Lady Jane. And I think I think it's after the detective shoots him. And she says something along the lines of, like, you know, he doesn't have control over what he's doing. Um, he's merely a, a puppet. And he's like, well, 
you, I thought you cured him of be, of this. And she's like, no, there's good in him. He's just forgotten it somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's being controlled. And it, it's just like this feeling of like, Andreas is to be pitied because he's under the influence and should not be held accountable to his actions. And during that part of the movie, I lowered my glasses and turned to you because I think they might be talking about, like, regular Germans. Oh. Huh. I didn't I didn't get that at all, but mm-hmm. I can see I can see where you're coming from. Yeah. Um because especially with Andreas being the one to end Tesla, mm. rising up against his master and overthrowing this um dictator. Mm-hmm. I also suspect that this is a theme because we started in 1918. Yeah. And now it's World War II. During this time, Germany's learned some good in themselves. And now they've been taken over again. But if they remember that good exists, um, also Jesus, uh, they will overthrow and overcome this hypnotism. Huh. That's really interesting. I Yeah, I didn't get that watching the movie. But I think you're not wrong because I think, you know. Because Columbia. Because the time period thing, right? Like, why specifically is it 1918 and 1940? Well, because it's World War One and World War Two, mm-hmm. right? I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought of that. Um, I just thought it was like, you know, well, because it needs to be this amount of time for these kids to grow up, but not be too grown up, kind of thing. Um, but I think that's really interesting. Speaking of World War Two, I do think that the most unique element of this movie, from a viewing it in 2019 perspective is the fact that it's, like, firmly set during the Blitz. That, yeah. like, World War II is a part of the plot, right? That they're not ignoring it. That kind of, to me, stands in stark contrast to Universal Strategy, where they just kind of, like, obliquely reference the war through metaphors, but not actually address it, where it's like... What year is it? Right, and in this movie we know what year it is, yeah. you know? I think the only time that I've seen the Blitz shown in a movie that's not like a, a World War II movie. movie, yeah. Um, is probably the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Hmm. Um, and even that, like, it's only in the beginning. So I was, like, impressed that they, like, when the sirens went off, mm-hmm. I was like, oh my god, the Jerrys are attacking? Yeah. I was like, what? Because it's England, and it's the 40s. Are we going to stop filming to hide? Like, it was just... Yeah, it, it was it was a very unique thing about this movie that I, for some reason, was not expecting, and I think it enhanced the movie. Yeah, it's it's really cool that, like, it's also, like, part of the story, right? It's how the vampire comes back, is because yeah. is he gets... And kind of how he's defeated a little bit. Right, is because he gets, <laughs> like, yeah, because the, the, the Nazis are bombing. Like, yeah. it's, it's interesting, and yeah, it's just so different from the universal... Studios thing of like, hey, we're in the village that Frankenstein's from, which is in some country in Europe. Yeah, I think, you know, this film even does the mix two monsters together thing better than Universal did. Yeah. Like, we've got a vampire and a werewolf in here, but it's better than um, Frankenstein meets the wolf man, where it was just like two completely different things that didn't really come together at all, right? Yeah. At least until the end for five minutes. <laughs> It should be said that, like, this movie has really good cinematography. Mm-hmm. It's got, you know, it's dark, it's shadowy, it's got lots of moving camera. It has this wonderful, spooky atmosphere that kind of toes the line between, like, 
Halloween spooky with like dry ice and uh, cemeteries and and things. Uh, but then like genuinely spooky, you know, shots of like the wind blowing autumn leaves into a room from an opened uh, window. It feels like the goal of this movie was to beat Universal at their own game, and I think it kind of succeeded. Yeah. Even thinking about the way that they showed Tesla, quote-unquote, transforming, or, like, going from fog to corporeal, Mm -hmm. I guess, they didn't have special effects like they did in Son of Dracula. No. They had nothing like that. And they did very well here. Yeah, it's it's very subtle. some, like, shadows, um, they... (laughs) <laughs> an extensive dry ice budget, um, and they they did so well. Let's say you're having a Halloween party, okay? And you want to throw on, like, a classic black-and-white spooky movie, right? The thing about it is, in that context, a lot of the Universal movies aren't really what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Like, the original Dracula is, I think, very slow-paced and methodical, for, and, like, just built on atmosphere, but not a lot of action, for, like, a modern audience. The original Frankenstein movies are, I think, you know, the original Frankenstein, at least, doesn't really have the scares that you're kind of looking for, or, like, the spooky atmosphere that you're really looking for. You know, Bride of Frankenstein might play well, and then you get to, you know, Son of Frankenstein might play well, Wolfman might play well. But then, like, Ghost of Frankenstein, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, the various Monster Mash movies that we, you know, we haven't quite gotten to yet, not a lot really happens in them, and they're kind of, like, cheap, and they're not really what you're looking for. You're not looking for Son of Dracula or Dracula's Daughter. That's not what's going to satisfy. But this movie, with the vampire and werewolf and, you know, spooky cemeteries and, and all kinds of stuff happening, and there's action throughout the movie, right? There's always something happening, But it's also not such a, like, classic, meaningful movie that you wouldn't mind, like, people at the party kind of laughing at it or having fun watching it. Yeah. Like, it's not bad. You're not sitting down to watch a monogram or PRC movie where it's like, this is actually trash. But it's not like, oh, I would actually kind of feel bad if I was watching Bride of Frankenstein or Son of Frankenstein. People were laughing at it or whatever, right? Like, I think this is a really good Halloween party movie, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah, as we kind of transition into ranking now, I honestly feel like this is a better horror movie than Dracula. Everything here, um, from the cinematography, the acting, the music. Music's pretty good. The music was working in tandem with all of these other aspects for a very killer horror movie. Plus some anti-war themes to boot. Right. Um, But I am curious how ranking's going to go, because how do we rank something that relies on a milestone film to capture its own success. For sure. So where were you looking? I really wasn't sure, Sarah, because I do think this movie is in some ways better than Dracula. Mm -hmm. But I also think a lot of that has to do with what do you want to get out of Dracula? Because I think Dracula is a very different movie than what people often want it to be. It's certainly very different from this. You know, I was just saying Dracula is very methodical, right? It's it's slow paced, and there's there's things about that that I like. I like that Dracula is kind of a movie that seeps into you and has a lot of mood and a lot of menace. But yeah, not a lot really happens on screen because it's a play. It, they're filming a play, right? Yeah. 
So I think this movie does what Dracula was trying to do better if what you wanted Dracula to be is like, I don't know, a good vampire movie. (laughs) But I do think there are other things that Dracula does better just in terms of what it was trying to do, which Mm -hmm. is be, I think, a little more low-key creepy. Like, I think Dracula is a creepier movie than this movie. But I do think this is funner to watch and probably just, like, better at being entertaining. So it's tough for me. And also this movie's so reliant on Dracula. Like, you don't have to have seen Dracula to see this, but this movie wouldn't exist without it, right? Like, it's building on it so heavily. So my range, my ceiling, is number 12. Because, yeah, I do think there's a possibility that we rank this higher than Dracula. Mm -hmm. But looking above that, I don't think it goes any higher. Like, I think Bride of Frankenstein's better than this. Because Bride of Frankenstein is, like, doing something and saying something and, like, making a lot of points that this movie is not making, you know? Yeah. Um, So then it was a question of, like, okay, well, where's the floor then? And I kept going down, kept going down, kept going down until I hit uh, Leopard Man at number 25. I think this is better than Leopard Man. Mm-hmm. I think it might be better than Seventh Victim. I'm not sure because, again, Seventh Victim is like a bumpy movie with some problems, but it's also talking about a lot more things than this movie is. Like, yes, this movie has anti-war themes, but other than that, like, it's it's it doesn't have the... Um, I guess it does still have the invasion narrative of Dracula, but it's no longer about, like, they're going to take your women. It's just about the threat of the foreigner coming to your country, right? But I don't think those themes are better than the themes of Seventh Victim. Like, really what this movie's more about is being entertaining. So, you know, and then right above that, there's Vampire. So I think we need to talk about, like, this movie versus Dracula and this movie versus Vampire. And the real question in both cases, I think, is an entertaining vampire movie that's, like, fun to watch, that, like, gives you the things you want from a vampire movie in terms of just the fun versus movies that are actually really trying to be scary and, like, give you nightmares. You know, like, I think think Vampire is treating its subject matter more seriously, which is not to say that Return of the Vampire is campy or, like, making fun of things or being silly, but I think Return of the Vampire is engaged in being entertaining and being fun. Mm -hmm. Um, So my range is actually within yours. Oh, okay. I also feel like this could go above Dracula. Like I said in the discussion, it can exist without someone having seen Dracula, and mm-hmm. I don't think it's like inherently tied to it in the same way that Bride is tied to Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do think it could very well go above. But looking down, this is kind of where my little preamble into ranking came from, because like... I look at the movies below, and there's Murders in the Zoo, and Famine Maria, Mm -hmm. and those movies, I think, have more horror than Return of the Vampire, Mm -hmm. but they both went below Dracula because Dracula has that iconic value, right? It's setting a certain precedent. It's what, like, solidified Universal as the horror studio. Yeah, and also solidified horror as a genre. Exactly. So I I wasn't really sure about ranking Return of the Vampire like above those movies 
when like the horror is is more in murders and Fairman Maria. But my my floor is actually a little higher than yours. I went down to Nosferatu mm-hmm. at seventeen, um, and I felt like you know Nosferatu's also ripping off Dracula and trying to make its own movie um, with hitting similar beats. And I think this movie. Return of the Vampire does a better job of it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's tough, right? Because you look at this movie and you're like, oh, this is doing Dracula better than Dracula does. Mm -hmm. And so on paper, you would think, well, that makes it a better movie, right? But Dracula's also doing Dracula first, you know? And you wouldn't have this without Dracula. And there's, there's certain parts of elements. There's a feel of Dracula that you don't quite get here either. You know, this is a little bit of a different kettle of fish. So, yeah, it's tough, right? Like, objectively, it's a better movie. But does that make it go higher on the list? Mm-hmm. I'm going to pitch you a spot. Okay. So, I think one of the things looking at this area of the list that is making me question how high to rank Return of the Vampire is what I was talking about with it not having, like, not having a lot of, like, deeper thematic content, Right. It's a lot of fun. It's doing what it does very well. It does a lot of good spooky imagery. But the thematic content is Nazis are bad, I guess. Like, you know, the war's on. Evil can be defeated by good, right? The Germans themselves have the power to overthrow Hitler and stop this war. I think that's what is going on here. Which is not what ended up happening, unfortunately, but... uh, That's fine. Yeah. But my point is that, like... Looking at other movies around here, like Fairman Maria, or Murders in the Zoo, um, even The Wolfman, like, I think the tragedy in The Wolfman's better. I like this werewolf more, but I think there's something about the tragic nature of The Wolfman that is better horror than this movie, where the werewolf can heroically overcome mm-hmm. his lycanthropy. It's more, it's better horror if he can't, right? Even if it's a, a better wartime theme if he can, right? So I kept kind of looking down, you know, Nosferatu, I get what you're saying about this doing things better, but also Nosferatu, like, is so iconic as well with how different it is from standard Dracula and, like, the unique creepy imagery there. Right below Nosferatu is um, A Page of Madness, Mm -hmm. and, like, that movie is so unique and doing such interesting things. The next movie down is Mad Love. Which is just about Peter Laurie kind of being weird and creepy and having a cockatoo and screwing around with Colin Clive's hands. And that's kind of where I was like, you know what, actually, no. It's, it's that, that's the first movie looking down that, like this movie, doesn't have really like a deeper meaning, right? Other than like creepers be creeping. And then you get below that, and it's like Walking Dead is in that same category of, like, this is really fun and good, Mm -hmm. but the theme of Walking Dead is basically just don't fuck around with God. So where I want to pitch you is kind of meeting in the middle here below a page of madness, but above mad love. To kind of say, like, this movie doesn't have a lot deeper going on, but it's really good. And so it's kind of like... If everything above here does have something deeper going on, this is the best of just an entertaining horror movie from the 40s, you know? Sure. I'm going to pitch you on an alternative option. Okay. At what point does the son stop living in its father's shadow? (laughs) Right, like at what point in, you know, as this show goes on, at what point do we have to say, like, 
well, no, this is just a better version of Dracula. This goes above Dracula, right? Like, at what point do we stop giving Lugosi points for coming first kind of thing? A little bit. Um, so that, like, I'll just, like, put that out there. Um, I definitely see where you're coming from. This is kind of why I'm, like, man, I, I really feel the push to put this above Dracula. Because it breaks that seal a bit. Yeah. However, because of, like, Murders in the Zoo, Fairman Maria, and even the Wolfman, um, I completely agree with what you're saying about, like, the more tragic aspect of it. And even in the handling of wartime themes, I guess in Wolfman it's a bit more subtle, Mm -hmm. um, but it's also much more in-depth, in my opinion. My alternative uh, suggestion is 16, so replacing Caligari, which Caligari was, like, a means to capitalize on this new German Expressionist movement. And I think we see... The use, like, we've already seen German Expressionism morph into its own thing here in America um, in the 40s. Film noirs being established um, and horror's use of shadow has been defined again and again. And this is, like, an absolute great example of, like, how it's being used in horror. So that's my alternative option for you. Um, Below the Wolfman, above Caligari. Yeah, there's there's part of me that's having a hard time putting it above Nosferatu, but, like, I I can't put my finger on why. I can't really give a good reason other than Nosferatu looks cool. But, like... Like It looks cool, but it has, like, an hour-long chase scene. (laughs) That's that's not really true, but... It's it's like a 20-minute chase scene of a mob going after that one guy. I think it's probably, like, ten minutes, but I take your point, because I think the movie's, like, an hour long. Um... Yeah, the the thing about Nosferatu is there's a lot of imagery from Nosferatu that really sticks with you and is, like, memorable and iconic, but, like, the movie itself is not actually as good as you want it to be. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Nosferatu, you know, some of it's just a little clunky. Okay, yeah, let's do that, because I think I'm... I, I, it's weird. I, I, I question putting it above Nosferatu, but I have no problem putting it above Caligari. But I think that harkens back to the Caligari versus Nosferatu, like, debate of, like, 80 episodes ago. Yeah. Oh, God, no, more like 90 episodes ago. <laughs> this is episode 110, Ben. Oh, God, more like 100 episodes ago. <laughs> okay, well, anyways, let's do it. Let's do it. Um, okay. Yeah, we're, eventually we're going to have to put a vampire movie above Dracula. But, but it, it is, is not, not this day. day. Okay, so entering the list at number 16, showing Universal What's What, it's Return of the Vampire from 1943, directed by Lou Landers. The Return of the Vampire, directed by Lou Landers from 1943. If you don't put that the above there, you get a different result on Wikipedia. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we might have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to appeal this or any other ranking, drop us a line through our appeals box, but you can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. You're welcome to send any comments, questions, concerns, and reminders of, hey, you missed this movie. You can also talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. 
Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play. You can listen to us through the podcasting app of your choice by subscribing to our RSS feed. If you'd like to leave us a rating or a review, that really helps the show out. We very much appreciate it. We love to hear any and all feedback that you have for the show. Another thing that helps us out a lot is if you tell a friend about the show, anyone you think might be interested in a show about old horror movies, classic Hollywood, the history of culture. Uh, <laughs> that's, oof, that's big. Yeah, I mean, this, this, this podcast is like an octopus. It's, its tentacles just reach into all Cut kinds of one different... head, two more appear. That's a hydra, dear. Yeah, but they use an octopus in their imagery. Okay. Tell a friend about us. It really helps the show out. Helps word of mouth is the best way for podcasts to grow, whether you're doing that on social media or just in person. The other thing we would really like is if you headed over to patreon.com slash podcast and take a look at our Patreon. Uh, you can sign up to become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, at the $5 and $10 tiers, there are uh, bonus rewards, and if we hit our $150 Patreon goal, we're going to start doing bonus episodes, one per month, on horror-adjacent movies, stuff like Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Yeah. So one more time, that address is patreon.com slash Podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week we're back to Universal, so we'll see how they... I guess rebut this challenge to their supremacy. I mean, really, everyone's challenging Universal supremacy these days. RKO's out here just knocking it out of the park. But um, we're back to Universal. We're also seeing the return of our good friend George Zuko. Oh. And I don't really know anything else about this movie, but it's 1943's The Mad Ghoul. Excellent. That sounds good. So we'll see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.